Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike is joined by Carolyn Bartholomew and Robin Cleveland, Chair and Vice Chair of the 2021 Annual Report Cycle for the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission. Mike, Carolyn, and Robin discuss the purpose of the commission and top-line findings and recommendations from the 2021 report, including concerns about Chinese nuclear capabilities, investment risks, funding for Indopaycom, and Chinese influence in Latin America. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, and I'm joined by Carolyn Bartholomew and Robin Cleveland, who are the chair and vice chair of the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, uh, managed by the U.S. Congress. And we'll talk about their annual report on U.S.-China relations, which is a, a comprehensive assessment of where we are, what the challenges and threats are, with recommendations for Congress. But before we get to that, uh, Carolyn and Robin, can you uh, tell me how you ended up on this board? I, I know a bit about your backgrounds, but for listeners, how did you get onto this topic of U.S.-China relations? And Carolyn, you're the chair, right? So I guess we'll start with you. And I think perhaps I've been doing U.S.-China issues a little bit longer than Robin, though we've worked together in one capacity or another for going on 30 years now. I was legislative director for now Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, six weeks after she was elected in 1987. And then when June 4th, 1989, the Tiananmen massacre happened, we shifted a focus uh, really to look at U.S.-China issues. At the time it was started out of concern for what was going to happen with the many Chinese students who were here in the United States and the presumption that they weren't safe if they went back to China because they would be presumed to be pro-democratic. And the issue expanded through the course of the 1990s, human rights, of course, and then proliferation, China's proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and trade. So it was the course of the 1990s where we started really focusing on the broad range of U.S.-China issues. I can talk a little bit about the opening of the commission or, or rather. Yeah, no, no, that's good. To- let me let me just quickly ask you about Nancy Pelosi, who I met when I first started teaching at Georgetown after I left the Bush White House. One of the first things I did was have a dinner with prominent Georgetown supporters and alums, including her husband. And she was at the dinner and she was focused like a laser because I was talking about our policy towards China, incredibly well-informed. A lot of members of Congress saw what happened in Tiananmen, but but she was very, very focused from that point on. Is there something about, is it San Francisco? Why the why does Speaker Pelosi have this particular interest in, in, in China? Uh, I think there were multiple reasons. There continue to be multiple reasons. Uh, one, of course, was the horror of seeing tanks running over young people was something that was going to engage anybody who who had a conscience and was concerned about human rights issues. She has a long history of having worked on different human rights issues. Some of it was she has a very active Chinatown. And at that time, the people in the Chinatown were very pro-democratic, small d democratic, and very concerned and upset about what happened in Tiananmen. So it was a multiple I would say a multitude of reasons why she was interested in and and concerned about. And then, of course, as I said, the issue grew. So we pulled together a coalition of people who were interested in different aspects of this. Yeah, interested in and I would say consistent about China for a long, long time. No, I'm sure with your with your help. And Robin, we worked together in the White House. But how did you end up in this business? 
I worked for the first person that Senator McConnell hired in Washington and uh, now Leader McConnell. And he, I started this, as Carolyn pointed out, a little bit later. He was deeply concerned about the transfer of Hong Kong and was eager to play a role in terms of protecting human democratic and commercial rights in, in Hong Kong. And so that was my first sort of real involvement. Grew up in a foreign service family that lived in Asia, but that was my sort of pivot point, I would say. And and his interest in Hong Kong came from, it, it will surprise some of your your uh, audience that his interest in Hong Kong really stemmed from a, an interest in, in, it started with South Africa, but there is a definite arc to his career in terms of commitment to free elections, to democratic rights. And Hong Kong was in 1992, he sponsored the Hong Kong Policy Act, which became law, which memorialized uh, in law what the relationship had been. So that was my first exposure. But your exposure to Asia is a lot longer. I mean, I've met your dad. He was a, a storied ambassador to Australia and Asia Hand. And I actually worked briefly with your brother, who's in this field. So you grew up in Australia for sure, right? Or, was, or were you already away at school? Australia, Indonesia, Korea, Malaysia was where he served and in various stages of my life visited or lived. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you worked as the director of Office of Management and Budget in the Bush White House. And uh, I tried, like everyone else in the White House staff, to get money out of you. <laughs> for our pet projects in Asia. Yes, you you will. Yes, I want to lower my status. I was not the director. That was Mitch Daniels and then Josh Bolton. Yeah. Right. I was the the so, associate director, um, but for national security and international right. affairs. So, yeah. You, um, you had the money all of us on the NSC staff wanted. wanted yes. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it is. It has been a long the, the OMB followed appropriations. And, and there is a for young listeners, um, follow the money is a good career choice in terms of it. There is far more influence and opportunity to influence policy in positions where funding is being appropriated or or distributed. So, yeah. So tell us about the history of the commission you now chair. So this commission, the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, was sort of an outcrop of what used to be the Trade Deficit Review Commission. It was established by Congress in 2001 when Congress voted to grant China permanent normal trade relations, which paved the way for uh, China to enter the WTO it was one of the, you know, not having PNTR was one of the barriers for China's accession. It is bipartisan. There are 12 commissioners. We are always proudly bipartisan, reflecting that China policy is generally bipartisan. 12 commissioners, three each of us appointed by the House and Senate Democratic and Republican leaders. Uh, Congress established two commissions at the time of the PNTR vote. One is us with a mandate to track, to analyze the national security implications of the U.S.-China economic relationship, and they also established the Congressional Executive Commission on China, which focuses on human rights. I think the establishment of these commissions reflected ongoing concern about how the relationship was was going to unfold and what China was going to become. There's a lot of almost ahistorical amnesia-like descriptions of how the Congress and the administration were completely naive about China after China, not just after China joined the WTO, but back, you know, beginning with Nixon's opening and just assumed China would converge and no one was thinking about it. And then, you know, somehow in 2018, the Trump administration discovered China's a problem. Your commission is evidence that that's just not the case. There was a skeptical eye on this relationship from from the beginning of PNTR, wasn't there? There was a skeptical eye before then. Robin gets tired of me saying it, but uh, some of us in the 1990s were concerned about what was going to be happening as 
as China grew in strength and raised those concerns. As I said, it was a coalition of people focused on human rights, trade, and nonproliferation. Um, so the, esta- the establishment of the commission, which again reflected these concerns, was really tasked with looking at a lot of the downsides of the relationship. So we are, you know, again, we're tasked uh, with a mandate from Congress to focus on these issues of concern that Congress had. We had eight, I think, an eight-point mandate when we were started. I think it's an eleven-point mandate now. And really designed to keep an eye on these things and give Congress subject matter expertise, but also make recommendations to Congress for congressional action. And how much are you independent of members of Congress and how much do you turn to members of Congress for input and guidance? That's a good question. I think that we are all trusted to use our own judgment on these issues. You know, we're chosen by the members who have reasons for choosing the commissioners that they choose. I think certainly for many of us, it's that we reflect uh, concerns that they've had, sometimes longstanding concerns. We are very interactive with the Hill in the sense, particularly at the time of the annual report. It's been one of the interesting things over the course of the past couple of years. We've always had staff level briefings of other staff on the Hill. We have very strong professional staff. We've had a lot more requests for individual briefings for members of Congress. So we interact with them. Um, we always tell people to consider us a resource. And we sometimes are tasked with looking at specific topics. One of the examples that I can always think of is we started looking at fentanyl. I don't even know how many years ago because we had a request from from a senator at the time uh, who was getting concerned about what was happening in her state and wanted us to look into it. So it's a collaborative process. Robin? Nothing to add. I mean, I, I think it's we serve and support congressional interests, I think is the the summary. I mean, I think we all operate independently of our appointing authorities, but but are very much um, mindful of what their interests are and how we can best help inform the discussion. Your annual report came out towards the end of last year, and you had 32 recommendations, 10 of which you prioritized, which is very disciplined in a report like this. <laughs> and I won't ask you right now to go through all 10. We'll get to a lot of them. But how would you characterize the top line message of this year's report? To, you know, clearly at a time of intensifying geopolitical competition and a lot of other think tanks now are putting out these reports. You know, six, seven years ago, this commission's report would have stood out. Now there's a lot of places saying we got to compete better with China. So how did you cut through that crowded space and what were the key takeaways from the report? I think we built on our track record first and foremost. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think as we've assessed our role and responsibility, we work hard to identify issues that are over the horizon in terms of importance, not just to recap what has happened. Um, I think for that reason, we have taken, we took a hard look at cybersecurity issues and cybersecurity threats several years ago. We did an assessment this year of China's nuclear posture and modernization. And we always take a focus or we try to have a focus on a region, which we shift each year based on what we assess as, as the emerging concerns or risks related to China's investment and military strategy. So you're absolutely right. There are more and more people crowding into this space, which makes it important that we look at what we have done in the past and build on that record. I would say the key takeaways this year is, is concern about the risk of near-peer capability in terms of nuclear modernization, the increasing emphasis on the non-state sector in terms of Xi's control of the economy. It was interesting to listen to somebody the other day testify that she has never visited a private or non-state business. He only visits state-owned enterprises. 
And then I think we reflected concern about the shift. And I think you wanted to talk about this in terms of deterrence in Taiwan. So those were the sort of the key takeaways. Carolyn, you want to talk about how we get to the top 10? Yeah, uh, I can do that. But first to, to, to say that I think that we've had, um, as Robin said, you know, we try to, to um, identify areas that we think that the Hill should be paying attention to. It's been very interesting over the course of my time on this commission to see how the whole policy debate has shifted. You know, I said at one point at the very beginning, we were just people would say to us, oh, you're always so looking at the bad side. What about all the wonderful things that are happening? And many of those people now no longer say that. And I, I, I wish that we had been wrong in the early years. We would all be in a better place if that's the case. I would add to to what Robin said, some of the top line issues Thematically, of course, is the, is this kind of differential that's taking place where Xi Jinping and, and the CCP, they have a very aggressive outward facing posture. And at the same time, they are taking actions internally, increased oppression, crackdowns on freedom of speech, freedom of religion, just this intensification of oppression and talking about dangers to the Chinese people, both from within and without. So there's this kind of duality of that that's that's taking place. An issue that has been captured, I think, a fair amount in several of our recommendations is concern about investment, both Chinese investment coming into the United States and U.S. investment going into China with a focus for several years on making sure uh, trying to make sure that U.S. investors, uh, retail investors, know where their investments are taking place and, and what is at risk. And also, as Chinese investment is coming into the United States, what kind of technology they're acquiring and what that ultimately means. The chapters in the report that analyze what's happening in Chinese politics and society, the drivers of Chinese foreign and security policy, those findings might have been controversial four years ago. I think it'd be hard for us to find a China scholar who would disagree with what you say. I mean, the value really is that it's comprehensively presented in one package. The part that's getting attention is the set of recommendations, and, the, and especially the, the one you just mentioned, which is the first of the key 10 recommendations, which is for the Congress to consider legislation to address risks to U.S. investors and U.S. interests from investments in Chinese equity, debt, and derivative instruments. And you recommend looking at um, prospectively prohibiting investment in variable interest entities. Can you tell us for the layman what that means? And uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm as going you can? to defer to Robin, who is our economics expert. But before I do that, just a, I think that there are, of course, still China scholars who disagree with us. There are a few. There aren't as many as there used to be. There are people who have declined to come and testify in front of us. So there are still people out there. I know them well. Some of them, are, some of them are my professors. <laughs> and um, I would say that this a report like this five years ago would have been a 50-50 split among the Asia-China yeah. scholarly community. Now it would be more like 90% would agree. Yeah. And then yeah. the 10% keep us all honest. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and then again, just briefly, how we come up with the top 10, which is everybody ranks and then there's a there's sort of a, a an accounting for uh, the number of of um, people who have voted for which ones is their priority. So it it reflects a consensus. Well, this one on variable interest entities, and you've woken up the you know venture capital <laughs> uh, interest in New York and uh, Hong Kong and elsewhere have taken aim at this one. So maybe since it's going to be in the news the most and has been, how, can you, Robin, can you tell us the source of the concern and what the aim is? 
the, there are two real concerns, and I think what what Wall Street, frankly, is more interested in is we we've suggested that there be that the SEC step up regulation and enforcement when it comes to the indices, which some of the large houses sponsor. So you have a an index that includes weighted securities and your retirement, my retirement, somebody in Nebraska's retirement is in a 401k that automatically tracks the, that Bloomberg or that FTSE index. And there's no indication to that farmer in Oklahoma that the what's being tracked has a large component of Chinese enterprises in it. And that on short notice, just like what happened with Didi Shijang, the government can decide to pull the plug on that enterprise and the values wiped out overnight. So there is concern about transparency when it comes to your retirement 401k tracking these indexes or indices. The second concern is the variable interest entity, which has been the traditional pattern of Chinese investment in the United States. Because in specific sectors, it is illegal for Chinese companies to raise money in the United States, they can't just come to Wall Street and list on our exchanges. So they set up shell companies in the Caymans and elsewhere, and those shell companies essentially are solely owned by the founders, responsible to no authorities because they're illegal in China, and they are shell entities that are very difficult to hold accountable in, in terms of U.S. law. So we've been concerned actually for, for several years about what would happen if tomorrow uh, the CCP decided to put Alibaba out of business when so many investors hold that asset, then there is no legal mechanism. There is no way to enforce the structure that's been created to circumvent Chinese law to raise money in the United States. So if a critic of this policy said you're just trying to strangle China's economy or decouple the U.S. and Chinese economies, just cut off dependence. Would that be fair or would it be more about, no, we're trying to protect investors from significant risk to their investment that, you know, they don't know about? How would you answer the critic? I think that there is an element of we need to be careful about, we had a witness this year say that we don't want to finance our enemies or our adversaries. We don't want to finance companies that may very well develop a capability, whether it's cyber or military, to target the United States. So there is an element of concern about where American investors and investment and resources are, are going. But I think overall, the principal concern that we've articulated over the years is concern about transparency and protecting the American investor. I would just add, Michael, that on the decoupling issue, because people like to say that we're decoupling, but really the Chinese government has been decoupling for, for quite a while with their Made in China 2025 initiative with these other initiatives that they're taking place and this whole idea of dual circulation that they have now, right, which is to minimize the dependency that they have on outside technology and to improve what's happening internally in China's economy. Robin can express this a whole lot more sophisticatedly than I can. <laughs> they want access to global resources. They want access to global markets, and they don't want us to have access to their markets. It's that simple. And they're, they would like to develop self-sufficiency when it comes to technology. They'd like to develop self-sufficiency when it comes to manufacturing and innovation. They haven't demonstrated that capability so far, but, but that's the objective. And, you know, even without implementing your recommendations, because of what you just described, 
you know, leading tech companies, honestly, more so Japan and Korea than U.S., but leading tech companies are shifting high end, uh, especially in semiconductor uh, fabrication production around the world away from China. They're trying to protect themselves. So, Mike, I, I would be interested in turning this around and asking you, I mean, you have such deep knowledge and experience when it comes to the shifts and and the ups and downs in the Japanese economy. There is an argument right now that we should be looking at how the Japanese kind of adjusted their economy over the years and considering that approach towards China. What's your sense of whether or not as we we look to change the relationship and the reliance on, on Chinese manufacturing, where does Japan play a role? How does their track record contribute to our understanding? So I'm going to answer that, and then I'm going to turn it back to you. <laughs> um, and the answer is still being, or the solution is still being debated in Japan and in Korea. Um, it, it's not, they don't have a completely solidified policy yet, but I think they've got more of a consensus than we do in the U.S., particularly in Japan, where they've been competing with China longer uh, than we have and thinking about it harder for longer. And I think the consensus for them is, especially for the government, they want reshoring, they want semiconductor fabrication, all the stuff that's in made in China 2025, but especially in the areas of AI, of artificial intelligence. They want those high technologies not leaking to China. And it, for the most part, corporate leaders in Japan agree and are trying to find a way to do it. But at the same time, the Japanese and Korean companies have no intentions of they're going to decrease the quality of their investments, but not the quantity. And that's a difference with us because the Biden administration has no position that I've seen on U.S. foreign direct investment in China. And the Japanese and Koreans do. They, you know, the Japanese want CPTPP in these trade agreements in part to protect their companies investing in China. It's not clear to me what the U.S. strategy is right now for U.S. corporations. You know, the largest auto sales are uh, in China are Volkswagen, but I think GM or, or, or Chevy U.S. is right behind them as number two. So we have huge investments. And it's not clear to me that we have decided yet in the way the Japanese and Koreans are beginning to where we land. And I don't know if you discussed this in the commission, but where do you decouple and where do you maintain? Obviously, exporting soybeans is good for a lot of Americans. But what do you do about manufacturing and investment? We don't I don't think we have a strategy and I don't think our our industry talks to government the way they do in other countries. I don't know. That's a long winded answer as a question, too. It's, I think you're on to something important, which is that that it's one thing to talk about making a Volkswagen or a Chevy in China. It's another thing entirely when you start talking about the consequence and the importance of AI to the future of all economies. And I think we had a, an interesting hearing on, on AI a couple of years ago. And, and I mean, it is the accelerant. It is the capability that in quantum physics that that will or will not define our competitiveness in in the coming decades. And so investment should be able to proceed in areas where there isn't a threat of compromising our future economic security. It becomes really tough when it comes to the financial sector, right? Because what we have historically seen is China opening up its markets because it needs the investment for some specific growth target. The financial, large financial institutions are coming into China right now, moving into China, and it becomes a little um, murkier as to how they're going to contribute to China's advancement. So we could draw a clear line as, as Japan and Korea have when it comes to advanced technologies, but money's a different proposition. And how are we contributing to the well-being and the survival of the CCP is a big question. 
Companies like Bridgewater and others are moving huge amounts, billions and billions of right. dollars. So right. Is that kind of what you're, without naming yeah. the companies, beyond well, I think, what I, I mean, mentioned, that's the issue you're talking about, right? Yeah. I mean, the large and very, very successful enterprises, and it's, you know, you can name any of them, whether it's Goldman or Blackstone or, or Fidel, they're all looking for opportunities to create wealth for them, their stockholders, but also for Chinese citizens. And the question becomes, it, you know, money is fungible. And what are the risks to American security and, and economic interests with this big push of investment? Carolyn, in my discussions with members of Congress, uh, which I do uh, on Asia quite a bit these days, I find an almost universal and bipartisan discomfort with what Robin's describing. And uh, I think it's reflected in your report, but 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 how does the commission, how do you think about, like, it's pretty tricky. How do you regulate or manage that? We didn't this year. We, we, <laughs> we, we basically, we had a hearing, we talked about some of the financial flows, we, and but we will continue to look at it. Because it's a difficult, but Carolyn, sorry, yeah. I interrupted you. Well, I didn't want to. I don't want to minimize the importance of the manufacturing sector here in the United States and the need to to uh, reshore some of these things. I think we've really seen that in the COVID pandemic with the fact that we we need PPE. We were not able to get our hands on enough of the PPE and manufacturing other things. That's really highlighted some vulnerabilities here in our own economy. But I think, especially in the tech sector, you know, when we talk about what is it that these American companies are investing in? It really is the tech sector that is sort of the overlap of the economic issues and the security issues. So we talk about AI, we talk about cloud computing, you know, access to data, all of this information that the CCP can collect through telecommunications, through all of these things, and the platforms that things like cloud computing, AI provide for the development of further technology. It, it has serious economic implications for us, but it's got serious security implications for us too. Just basic civil liberties. I, I'm surprised. I'm teaching citizenship merit badge to the scouts now, the Boy Scouts. We're talking 13, 14-year-old scouts. And they talk about this. You know, they know about TikTok. They know about this stuff. It, it, it's become kind of basic for a lot of Americans that surveillance state could have global reach. I'm always, I mean, granted, it's a scout troop in Washington, D.C., but still um, at that age, they talk about it. But you know what's interesting, Michael, though, is that people don't necessarily think about what it is, right? So they so they can have this concept that information is being gathered from them. But every time I see something where somebody says something like, oh, post a picture of yourself when you were 12 years old, there's data that's being gathered every time people participate in what they think is an innocent, um, uh, just, a, you know, this is a fun thing to do, but there is biometric data being gathered, there's data being gathered, information that is being collected. And people don't always think about that. We can't really expect them to think about that all, but it is all encompassing. I mean, we carry these little computers around with us. We can be tracked. We can be tracked on our fitness things. Um, I think somebody in the Trump administration had said, even what was it that our that our microwaves or our refrigerators can spy on us. And essentially, as everything gets all wired together, they can. And with AI, You'll have microcircuits in window panes that you can't see that are that are sending signals about the temperature and humidity in your house, and so huge amounts of data. It's a transformational technological period in history, and and so basically, this comes through in your report. We're not just talking about commercial competitiveness. We're not just talking about national security. We're talking about you know 
what Kennan began uh, his first NSC document with, that, that our objective is to protect our way of life. It's, it, it couldn't be more fundamental than that. That was sort of our conclusion in the, well, in the introduction this year, that, that, that a way of life is at stake that has served the globe, served our partners, our allies and friends well, including our citizens, that a way of life is at stake. So the other big recommendation that jumped out at me of the top 10 was, and this may be back to Robin since it's a defense budgeting question, but um, <laughs> properly funding Indo-PACOM, the Indo-Pacific, the Pacific Deterrence Initiative is uh, is an authorization, uh, but the appropriations have not kept up. And I guess that's what you're pushing with your recommendation here is appropriate the funds so that we can maintain deterrence in the Pacific, Robin? I'm going to let Carolyn handle this one because <laughs> I, I take that this is, I think it is important to fund our requirements and to fulfill the obligations and commitments we made when starting with you and uh, that that we recognize that the statement of being a Pacific power was not enough, that we had to, we had to back it up. And I might just shift for a moment to things like, it's not just the major military requirements, it's things like making the Compact on Federated States Agreement that's up for renegotiation. That is really important in terms of staking out our position in the, in the Pacific. So it's not just a question of financing what we think of as the military requirements, it's being present economically, it's being present uh, across the region. Yeah, well, it's been an interesting thing on spending generally uh, on the commission, because as I said, we're bipartisan. We have some people who are far more willing to say we should be spending more money to do X, Y, or Z, and people who say that that, that is not the answer. In some ways, Mike, I'll almost buck this issue also to this year, which is we now have Randy Shriver on the commission. And I think we'll have some interesting discussions about what needs to be done within DOD and our spending in order to really implement what it is that we think needs to be implemented in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, I will point to one other recommendation, and that is related specifically to Taiwan and concerns about how long it takes for Taiwan to get the equipment that it finally agrees to purchase, the military equipment. There's got to be some ways to speed that up so that, you know, if you're buying military equipment and it doesn't show up for eight years or 10 years, things could be overtaken by events by the time that happens. So I think we really need to figure out a way to speed that up. I am uh, surprised to read about weapon systems we've sung to Taiwan that came across my desk for approval 16 years ago. <laughs> yep. And we're just starting to deliver them to the force in Taiwan. And you mentioned yeah. specific capabilities, ship-to-ship missiles and sustainment and so forth. So there's a very, for people who read the report, there's a very specific list. You said every year you look at a different region, and this year it was Latin America, What's the main takeaway? Should we be worried? Well, yes. I mean, I think, what well, we should certainly be concerned. You know, for a number of years, China had a, a relatively small presence in Latin America, and they were really careful about it because they didn't want to look like they were mucking around in our backyard. They don't have those concerns anymore. They're doing a lot of infrastructure investment. A lot of it has to do with minerals that they want acquisition to. But there's a growing presence both at the local political level of Chinese influence, training of journalists, training of people in political parties. Robin mentioned, right, there's ideology that's taking place here as well as the investment that's taking place. And people have not been paying attention enough to Latin America and the Caribbean here in this country. And meanwhile, of course, the Chinese are present, present and, and providing infrastructure, providing funding. There are downsides to that funding, providing training, providing in some places information, you know, that they are making free and available to journalists there. 
I think mm-hmm. one of the, the the statistic that stood out to me about Latin America is is Chinese policy banks lend globally, and of, over the last decade of the half trillion dollars that they put out there, more than half of it went to Latin America. So you're talking about two hundred and seventy eight billion dollars or so that is invested in owning the Chilean utility system, building dams and and all sources of income, I'll point out, whether it's ports or dams or, or, or the utility system. It's a way of promoting their trade, their interests in terms of sales of, of energy, but also establishing a foothold. And, and I think it's a majority, as in 60% share of the utility infrastructure in, in Chile is owned by the Chinese. Should that concern um, a citizen in Ohio on its face? It, it's like, what difference does it make? But if there's a crisis and economies are shut down because the Chinese engage in some kind of economic sabotage, that has global consequences. It, it also has uh, diplomatic consequences, right? That that in places that are indebted to the to the Chinese government, benefiting from a lot of Chinese investment, there is an expectation that they will be supported at, at initiatives at the UN and in other international bodies. So it's not just limited to they're building roads and bridges. It is a sort of a bigger picture of what they are going to accomplish by doing all of that. So the U.S. obviously can't be everywhere all the time. We, we have a fifth of global economic power and we have a lot on our plate. In Asia, we've got Japan and Australia and others holding the line. In Europe, you know, on the China problem, we're working much more closely with Britain and France, although we had a little kerfuffle over submarines, but generally with France and others. And when you looked at Latin America, are there allies and partners who will help us manage this? Difference, of course, is we have a lot of baggage in Latin America. We have a lot of baggage in Latin America. That's an interesting question. Robin, I'm trying to think if there's any country in particular that springs to mind. There are certainly European partners, but they have some of the baggage that we that we do. Mexico, I think, really, you know, being our being our direct neighbor. I mean, this is a fundamental about strategic competition with China we're talking about that I think a lot of people miss. To compete with China, you invest in the alliances you have, the institutions. A good China policy for Latin America sounds like a good U.S. policy for Mexico, right? Yeah, well, I think, uh, Michael, part of it is, of course, is showing up, right, and having a presence. We went through a number of years. I'm going to just switch regions. But, you know, we didn't we didn't have an ambassador in Singapore for a number of years. And people in countries notice when we don't even get to the point where we have official representation at a level that they should be expecting. So some of it is showing up. Um, I will credit the Biden administration with rebuilding our alliances. You mentioned, you know, Japan, Australia. AUKUS, I think, is a really interesting initiative. Um, and I think that we need to have more engagement with with countries in Latin America that go beyond right now. I mean, we just all seem to always be stuck in the issue about migration, that we need to look at bigger picture issues, too, with the rest of, of Latin America and how we can be partners with countries in Latin America. Do you know what the region will be for next year's report? Yes. Uh, well, actually, I was going to say we've had our first hearing already, which was on China's uh, political uh, decision making, because, you know, we were trying to get a handle on who is it that makes the decisions and how are the decisions being made. Yeah, we're going to look at South and Central Asia this year, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan. And then uh, Robin had also suggested that we add some of the stands into the, you know, the other stands into this to, to uh, keep an eye on what's going on in that region. That'll be interesting for a lot of reasons including the relationship with Russia, because that's a real canary in the coal mine for that increasingly important, uh, difficult for us relationship. I'd almost say partnership, the way things are going. Yeah, we had a hearing a couple of years ago on on uh, China and Russia. And I think that, that we would 
need to revisit some of the things that we had had concluded there. There had been at the time we were looking at some of the obstacles in them getting closer, but it certainly looks like they are working much more closely together. Yeah, I think we have in the U.S., the analytical and expert community has been a little unimaginative. I mean, we think about China-Russia cooperation the way we think about our alliances with NATO or Japan. They can do it the way we did it with the Soviet Union in World War II. You can hate each other and make sure that you're defeating the other guy by each doing what you do. So it, I hope you do revisit it. And what's next for each of you? Um, Carolyn, I know you have an exciting new chair position, if you can share uh, on it. Radio Free Asia, on <laughs> yeah. which, Michael, congratulations. You're also serving on the board of yes. Radio Free Asia. I will um, tremble and obey. <laughs> we're we're both um, uh, staying on the commission. I think that freed up to spend a little bit more time on some of the substance of it now that we are not serving in the leadership of it, but but continuing to focus. So, for example, I am going to be the person who is co-chairing the hearing on, on China in South and Central Asia. So I'm really looking forward to digging into those questions and, and you know, finding witnesses who can talk to us and be forward leaning. Right. We the, As I said, we like to be forward leaning. So understanding what's happening today, but also trying to anticipate what might be happening. And you know, we need to be thinking strategically about all of these things. Robin, yes. what is your, yeah. what's your area of interest in the coming me? Uh, that we, um, I'm co-chairing a hearing on new trade tools, and I think we're trying to to assess whether or not there are new steps, measures, mechanisms, unilaterally, regionally, and then in terms of uh, trade arrangements that we might consider. And then we are we're debating right now whether or not we have a panel that talks about is WTO dead or alive. It, does it have relevance? Um, I think. Neither Mr. Wessel or I are all that keen on debating that point. But, yeah, we're going to look at everything from, you know, PNTR to, to are there specific unilateral, regional and then um, multilateral initiatives that we might take in the trade area. Michael, one of the challenges of doing an annual report to Congress is that a lot happens over the course of the year. We generally lock down our text by October, you know, the beginning of October. And then, of course, there was stuff about hypersonic missiles and all sorts of things happen. But one of the issues that that I think both fits into the, the trade issues that Robin was talking about was figuring out ways to counter China's economic coercion. It's, you know, what it's been doing to Lithuania, what it was doing to Australia, to Taiwan, working together with with allies and partners where we can to support countries that are making decisions that we think are good decisions, but are being punished by the Chinese government for them. It's a really important topic. The Australians will tell you that. They've been hit as hard as anyone. And it's really complicated. How do you stop the Napa Valley wine producers from exporting more to China? because they've stopped buying Australian wine. You know, these are things our government's not used to doing. Uh, right. So it's very complicated, but really important right now, because this is a tool China's using to, to try to change the order that we all depend on. Well, yes, thank absolutely. you. Um, I'll look forward to that report, and I look forward to learning more about South and, and Central Asia. And the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission reports online, and a lot of the hearings are public as well, right? You can watch those online. Yes, they're all there. All of them are public. We have been doing things in a hybrid way, um, given the pandemic. And so we either are open, the rooms are either open to the public or people can watch them online. Plus, I think they get replayed online after they've, they get recorded and, and they're, they're posted. And importantly, you've been doing this for over 20 years. So there's a real track record here. Uh, yes, we have been doing this for over 20 years. <laughs> As I say, I wish people had listened to us 20 years ago. Nonetheless, here we are. <laughs> They are now. I, I, I got a bunch of press headlines on the report, and I won't read them all, but they're definitely listening now. So thank you both, Robin and, and Carolyn. Uh, and thank look you. Look forward to, to more thank work you. for the commission. Thanks. Very interesting. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page. Chessboard listeners, I'm Bonnie Lin, director of the CSIS China Power Project and host of the China Power Podcast. I'm inviting you to listen to our conversations with leading experts on the challenges and opportunities presented by China's growing power. We discuss topics such as Chinese military capabilities, China's relations with other countries, and critical issues in U.S.-China relations. You can listen and subscribe to the China Power Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or on ChinaPower.csis.org.